How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. Welcome to How Hard Can It Be? Up close and personal with the real people in Boston's venture capital big time. My name is Mike Triano, and you can follow me on Twitter at MikeTrap or on Medium at MikeTrap.com. My guest this week is Patrick Merck, Bitcoin insider and special counsel at international law firm Cooley LLP, where his practice focuses on regulatory and legal issues facing the fintech industry. Patrick's probably best known as the executive director of Bitcoin Foundation, which he co-founded in 2012. A prominent early figure in the world of cryptocurrency, Patrick's also held roles in multiple digital startups and served as an expert for U.S. and European regulators and policymakers. In 2014, he was named among America's 50 Outstanding General Counsel. Patrick serves as a fellow at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University, and his research focuses on the law and policy implications of Bitcoin, distributed ledgers, and smart contracts. Patrick and I met about a month ago as I sought uh, him out to speak at one of G20's upcoming uh, blockchain and bourbon events. More on that later. Uh, By total coincidence, he works just one floor above me in the same building here in Boston, right in Copley Square. Uh, So there you go. Uh, Pays to ask for uh, help on Twitter. I think you're really going to enjoy this. We will uh, dig into some stories from the early days of Bitcoin, uh, which were certainly enlightening to me. And uh, Patrick's just a great guy. I think you're really going to enjoy our chat. Uh, So here again, my conversation with Bitcoin Foundation co-founder, Patrick Merck. Good job not eating the rest of that bread. Yeah, you know, I... um I feel like uh, I feel like a hero. You should. Yes. You should. That's a victory. We're uh, we just uh, had sandwiches from the the uh, Moody Street delicatessen in the bottom of our building. Um, uh, so that's a, that's an interesting place to begin. I I had was looking for some uh, crypto Roddy, uh, highly influential folks in the in the um, Bitcoin space, um, and I did a bunch of research looking for influential folks, and I found like you know two or three people, and one of them was you. And you were in my fucking building. <laughs> um, it was it was a long way to travel to come see you today, was, but totally uh, worth it. All right, so um, your background is really unusual. Um, you are uh, you're, you're an attorney. You don't just play one on TV, but you're an actual lawyer. But um, you've had a rather, I would say, an unconventional route to that. So take us back to the beginning, just to sort of give people a sense of your story. Where did you grow up? And um, was there anything unique in the way you grew up that, uh, that, that sent you in this direction? Sure. Well, my parents are both lawyers, so I was raised by wolves. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so Mowgli-like. That, yeah, exa- exactly. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, uh, and I emerged from the, the pack a little bit. Um, so I grew up in Washington, D.C., um, and uh, I went to college in Washington, D.C., and I went to law school in Washington, D.C., and I met my wife in Washington, D.C. I had a very D.C.-centric life, um, and uh, I started my legal career uh, as a telecom media technology attorney uh, in D.C., mostly practicing before the Federal Communications Commission, um, and I did that for nearly three years as an associate, 
And I sort of had this epiphany, you know, I had the third nicest Porsche on my block and like all these different things. (laughs) And I looked around in McLean, Virginia, and I looked around, I was like, I, this is not what I thought I was going to do with my life. How old were you? I was late twenties. And you were married at that point? Yes. Yeah. No kids. Yeah. Which helped in terms of transitioning. Sure. But was it a vague sense of, um, you know, was it just that? Was it that the gap, the delta between your expectation and the reality? Or was it, were you deeply unsatisfied about some aspect of your professional life? Or what do you think was the catalyst? Because a lot of people feel miserable on a Wednesday, right? But but they don't like turn the whole fucking thing upside down. Sure. Well, I I feel like I've probably always had a little bit of an entrepreneurial spirit. And, you, you know, even at the law firm, and I had a very supportive, great law firm who was very supportive of me finding clients and bringing them in and being entrepreneurial right. within the boundaries of the legal profession. But still, it's there was an itch that needed to be scratched there. And, um, and it was, you know, it was, you could see when you're, when you're, when you go to law school and then you enter a law firm and you're in the legal profession, the walls do start to close in around you a little bit, right. um, sometimes in really great ways. I mean, it's a great profession. You can make a, a great living doing it and, and those things. But at the same time, it, you see your whole career path. It, it's very scripted yeah. or it's meant to be. I don't think it actually is in reality. But I think when you're young in the profession, it feels very scripted. You go to the right law school. You go to the right law firm. You do the right things. You make partner and everything kind of like flows from there. Um, and you, you do have that sense of like fear of deviating from the script a little bit. And I just, I wanted to shake things up. So, yeah. so we did. So what did you do? So uh, the financial crisis hit um, and uh, we decided what better time to sell our house <laughs> and move across the country and start over with Come no con- on, seven! Oh! <laughs> and start over in a new city with no yeah. connections. And so we picked everything up and um, and moved. Actually, we picked very little up. We sold basically almost everything we owned and just and went to Seattle and, and basically decided to start over. And I actually, my goal getting to Seattle uh, initially was... To set up, uh, set up shop as a as a small town like solo attorney and just do my own little thing and maybe I could eke out a nice little six figure living and kind of the Matlock of uh, become the Matlock crusted butte whatever exactly. yeah I thought that sounded like a pretty sure. good deal you know um, instead I joined a startup um, a uh, ad tech startup uh, it was called Big Door. Um, and we quickly pivoted into digital currency. Um, and at the time gamification was the big thing. Um, and we were a, a digital currency company riding that gamification wave. Um, as a company, we, we did well, um, uh, great founding team. Uh, I learned a lot from them. Um, I think we raised, you know, close to $20 million in venture funding from people like Foundry Group and Bradfeld and uh, Andy Sack and, you know. Smart people. uh, Smart people. Um, And it was just an incredible experience for me in terms of just opening my eyes to the possibilities coming from a very rigid, structured kind of like here's your career path to being dropped in a startup uh, taking a 90% pay cut and, you know, going out and buying ramen for the developers so that they could keep working yeah. and doing whatever it took to get the thing off the ground and then watching it grow. You know, this question is almost a cliche, but 
but you know there are people always you know I hear from people who listen to the podcast and they're they're the bef- they're the before you <laughs> and want to go do something like if if you could give yeah. advice to before you about what that first startup experience was going to be like and how you could be effective as a part of it what would you go back and tell yourself um i would i would really I mean, I felt like I did a lot of things right, maybe inadvertently, but one of them was commit. I just committed to it. I didn't have to commit my whole life to it in the sense of I wasn't, I didn't have to say I'm going to be at the startup for the next 20 years of my life. But while I was there, like this was the thing I was going to do. I wasn't distracted. I didn't go, you know, half in, half out. I just went fully into it. And that was my focus. Um, and it has continued to this day to pay and spin out dividends. Um, just, just focusing on that one thing, which at the time digital currency, um, and becoming like having some sort of like real grounding in that field seemed entirely stupid. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the things we were working on seemed stupid, um, but not wavering and just saying, finding the things that are interesting to, to me or to anybody listening, to you, latching onto them and going as deep as you can um, and not really worrying about how it's going to pay off for you, just knowing that probably it will. The digital currency thing, if we sort of throw that around and are becoming increasingly comfortable with it, but it's a kind of revolutionary idea and a, a disruptive idea and... Um, you know, you've been so closely associated with the, you know, the birth of a whole industry. Um, I'm curious, like when the first time you, you saw it, you, you read when the penny dropped on what it was, was there a kind of angels singing moment or like, was there a, um, what, was there a moment where you were like, oh shit, this is going to change everything. Number you know, is sort of the first part, but also, you know, what do you think it was about that thing that that so captured your you know imagination. I mean, it's it's affected the trajectory of your life, right? Yeah, um, I, I will say, I don't. I have trouble finding like a single light bulb moment there, and and maybe that's comforting to some people who are listening. It it, it wasn't like I I sat there and it was in the shower and all of a sudden it was like aha yeah I figured it out. It was just it's been a very like slow and gradual thing um, where. It was for me um, where it just started occupying more and more space in my brain. And I just started, like, thinking about it at random times. And, you know, it's just one of those things that just grows on you. Yeah. Um, I think then, you know, th- there there were a couple moments, you know, after I had spent some time and I'd really dug in on it where, you know, I would sit there and I'd, I'd want to go deep on a certain particular topic and then I would have that revelation like, you know, when it was with with Bitcoin in the, for me, the very early days of my learning about it, I started thinking, why is it, why do people keep calling this thing a currency? This was a question that was nagging at me. Like everybody says this is money, but it doesn't really seem like money to me. Um, And I still don't think it's necessarily like a money, right? Um, and that's this is me being a pedantic lawyer, maybe. But I started drawing it out, and I started drawing like how the transactions work, how the blockchain works, and it just struck me that this has nothing to do with money, and it has everything to do with property, and how we record property, um, and 
if there was a light bulb moment for me, it was probably then because I saw past the veneer of like simple descriptions of what the thing was and I had gone deep enough to understand it at a more fundamental level. Yeah. And it opened like the whole world to me. Yeah. You know, there's a couple of things that I, I, I think are common to folks like you um, as I've kind of getting to know more and more of the people who are really driving this space and the appeal of the layers of it. There's a puzzle aspect to this thing where you just keep peeling it back and whatever. And like some of these guys, you know, we were talking about our event the other night and that was like, you know, crypto nerd central. And, <laughs> and these guys want to go deep and they're peeling away the things and they're talking about like whatever this, you know, it's hard to even keep up because yeah. they just love to like dig into the minutia of why, you know, you know, uh, uh, coin X is better than coin Y or whatever it is. They have their thing. Like there's this weirdly tribal obsession with the arcana of this world that is seen as a feature rather than a cost, you know, yeah. for people who are true, true believers, number one. And number two, it's sort of like, you know, I think, I think for newbies, it's all about the coin, as you say, all about the money. When people who really get it, it's about the ledger, really. It's yeah. about this distributed mechanism to maintain the truth, you know, and that that it takes a while for that to kind of dawn on people. I yeah, think. and sort of who's in control of what, like who gets to be the architect of our systems of property and finance, yeah. really? Like who's designing it, and why do they get to design it, and what role do we have in it? Were you in the sort of libertarian idealist camp? I did open the door for that, didn't I? Yeah. But I'm not. And you know what's funny? My dirty secret in Bitcoin has always been that I was an uh, Obama Democrat. <laughs> 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 I actually worked on the Obama campaign in 08. Right, um, right. So I've, I'm, a, I'm a lifelong Democrat. I'm, you know, I, I, I respect some of the libertarian viewpoints. Um, I'm a believer in personal liberty and things like that. But um, but I would not consider myself a libertarian per se. Right. All right. So um, let's go back to your story. So you uh, have this experience. Unlike the vast majority of people, you have a positive outcome in your first startup. It was a partially positive outcome, right? I, I didn't actually make anything off of that startup. My my shares the I, I the the company ended up selling after I left and uh, for less than the liquidation value. So right. I mean I didn't make a I didn't make a dime. I took a huge pay cut to go there. I never made anywhere near what I was making at the law firm. But it was a huge success. It was a huge success because I got into something that I found super interesting, and I was able to, to like define my career around it, of course. Yeah. And I was able to meet people that have become part of my network to this day um, that have been incredibly helpful in supporting me along the path. Introduce us to some of those people. What, what did you do after that? Sure. Um, so after I left, um, I sort of my son was born, and I decided, wouldn't it be nice to you know take a break from crazy startup life for a little bit and maybe settle into that kind of country lawyer <laughs> uh, lifestyle? Uh, and then you know the Bitcoin people. I had already sort of poked into Bitcoin a little bit at the, by that point, and the the Bitcoin people started finding me. Um, John Matonis, uh, who subsequently we worked together at the Bitcoin Foundation. Uh, was the first person to really reach out to me, um, uh, and, and he he was very into Bitcoin. Um, he had been from almost the beginning, 
and he kind of sent me a note and said, you're a digital currency lawyer and you get startups. Like, I have clients for you, baby. And it was like, oh, man, what happened to my, like, simple country lawyer lifestyle? Um, then I met um, uh, Charlie Schrem and uh, Jared Kenna, uh, who are two early kind of Bitcoin entrepreneurs in the space. Charlie, somewhat notoriously. Um and uh, I started working um, with them and, and a few other people that they had introduced me to. At the same time, I, um, a client that I had had, which was a non-digital currency, non-Bitcoin startup, um, had introduced me to one of their investors who was getting very into Bitcoin, who introduced me to another startup in Seattle called CoinLab um, that was working in the space as well. Um, and Mike Koss and Peter Vesnes um, and some other folks there. Um, and so I started talking to all these people. At some point, I got introduced to Roger Ver, and Roger and I had a lot of conversations in those early days and, and did some things together. Um, got introduced to Gavin Andreessen, um, who, who is still you know a, a good friend and a great guy. Um, and... Um, and we kind of came together and, and one of the things that it came from all these different conversations was, and it's something that Gavin had posted uh, on the Bitcoin talk forum, which is the government's not going to just sit there and say, yeah, guys, go do whatever you want. At some point they're going to look for a public face on this and we should, we should have something. And there were some other reasons that he thought that it would be a good idea to start a foundation. So we should have a Bitcoin foundation. Um, and so then we decided like, you know, I was already off doing some public policy work and putting something together around that. And some of the people who were putting the Bitcoin Foundation together came and said, you should be part of this effort. Um, and I became a co-founder of the Bitcoin Foundation, and we spun that up, which opened, started, like, really formally, the next chapter, you, you could say, yeah. in sort of that career path. So so I think, I think the form formation of the Bitcoin Foundation and sort of bringing it out into the open or at least some acknowledgement of broader responsibility on the part of that community is a turning point um, from what had been a um, sort of, uh, you know, I would say vaguely antisocial niche, uh, you know, hobbyist almost like there was a sort of ham radio feel to, yeah. um, you know, that that era uh, you know, you hear stories about this house in San Francisco that uh, where all these like, you know, early Bitcoiners hung out. Um, I would strongly encourage people to read a book called The Age of Cryptocurrency, by the way, written by a couple of Wall Street Journal um, uh, reporters and and that tells some of the story uh, that uh, we're hearing firsthand uh, here from Patrick. But but, you know, when you reflect on that period, the, the sort of, um, you know, again, the ham radio period, like. Any stories come to mind that you think are particularly interesting or or illustrative of what it was like? Yeah. Um, well, one of the things I, I think we look at Bitcoin today and you look at, you know, the price of Bitcoin, which to me just seems like a, a astronomical. I, you know, I wonder if I'm living in a simulation sometimes. Um, and you think that everybody must have seen it. But nobody saw it. Yeah, like, your your first coin, you you paid what for it? Do you remember? I I've never bought a bitcoin. Really, <laughs> really? I, in my, I've never bought a bitcoin. Wow, never. That's so interesting to me. Yeah, I've earned them. Yeah, I earned them, but right, I never, right. I never, never I never one. bought any. Interesting. Um, 
Um, but that was way back, right? That, that was, was way back. Yeah. And for a long time, I had I never sold one either. Yeah. I would just earn them, and I would spend them. And I really believed in that whole circular economy thing. Once I started getting my entire salary uh, in Bitcoin, yeah. which is what happened at the Bitcoin Foundation, um, then I had to because I had to pay my sure. mortgage and child sure. care sure. and all those other things. Um, but yeah, I've never bought a Bitcoin. I guess the thing that's interesting, right, is people saw it. I mean, I think there were people who believed, right, and they that someday this was going to be the thing. Obviously, there were people who really believed that. But at the same time, it's not as if everybody was just hoarding them closely, knowing that, you know, at some future date, they could sell them for $15,000 each. Um, it was far from that. I mean, everybody was really trying to, as fast as they could, spend them, right, to just kickstart the whole thing, to get it going, right? Um, the idea of just holding on tight, which now is like a big feature of the community, I, it didn't really exist back in the early days. It was it was it was sort of the opposite from what I observed. I'm sure there were people who had different takes on it. Yeah. Um, we played a poker game once. I, it was actually the best, the best, best take I ever, I ever, uh, had. Um, it was like Eric Voorhees and Charlie Shrem and all these like now people, like Yufu and all like all these people who now are like sort of like, you know, the founding le- fathers, legendary in the community. Yeah, but at the time yeah. it was just like, we we're just sitting around like some office in, in New York we were like, let's have a poker game. And I, and you know, everybody just kicks in a Bitcoin. And at the time, you know, it was like kicking in five bucks. Yeah. It really was just, it, it wasn't a thing. Um, but yeah, I went like 10 Bitcoin in a poker <laughs> hand. Once. That was pretty good. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, I mean, I'll never beat that. Time's changed. That'd be a big hand. That'd be a big hand. Yeah. We'll be right back. Howard can be a sponsor by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. Do you have a theory on who Satoshi is? Not really, and I kind of don't care. And I know that's sort of a cliche thing to say, but I, I really, I really don't care who Satoshi is. I don't think it's, I, I think it's a curiosity, but I don't think it's meaningful in any real way. Yeah, um, it's a, it's a remarkable. I, I think you're right. I think it. I'm dazzled by the prescience of, of it. Mm-hmm. You know, him or they, more likely, um, having the presence of mind to realize that having a human founder who was a real person was a was a, a risk and a downside you know um, yeah and i think that that was that was clear and in the early days there was a lot of concern and it wasn't just you know gavin but some of the other uh you know jeff garzik and some of the other core developers um it was another thing that we talked about with regard to the foundation was you know the, some of these developers were were really concerned about the very real possibility of legal risk to them for building this system yeah. and being a known person who is building this thing. And I mean, today, you know, everybody builds these things and it's not really, um, it, it's almost weird if you would do it anonymously. Right. right, right. Um, but there is, there is real concern about the legal jeopardy that people were putting themselves in by working on these projects as known, known individuals. Um, I think there's it, there's just a lot from those early days that we that we forget now about how risky some of this stuff really was. 
I had a call, um, speaking of my, my former life as an attorney, I, I remember, um, I had a call with one of my mentors in law school and I said, this was back in maybe 2012, early 2012 or something. And I said, Hey, this Bitcoin thing is going to be really cool. You should, you should be all over this. And in, in fairness, he was. He was like, that sounds great. That sounds really awesome. This whole, like, chain of title thing and, you know, on, you know distributed ledgers and all that. Sounds really cool. Uh, let me put you in touch with, like, the partner who does, like, all the tech stuff here. And I talked to him, and, and he said, you know, we talked for 30 minutes on the phone, and he was like, this sounds really great. And then, you know, within an hour, I had a voicemail on my phone, and it was from the same guy. And he said, Patrick, I got to tell you, I just did a Google search on Bitcoin, and the first five things that came up were drugs, 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 and drugs. Yeah. He said, my professional advice to you is run. Don't walk <laughs> away from this. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, I mean, now we laugh because it was such terrible advice. In retros, in, you know, with, with, yeah. with foresight, it was terrible advice. But it was really risky back then. Yeah. And it kept, that risk kept a lot of people from really being involved. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like it's like the role of porn in the early internet, uh, that it really was like, you know, powered by, uh, you know, look, our, our animal spirits propel us forward. Um, yeah. That's why we've hung on to them in uh, evolutionary <laughs> terms. And, um, you know, I, I think if you ruled out everything that uh, was founded in the spirit of some combination of greed, lust, avarice, whatever, pick your pick your deadly sin, then you would wipe out most of human achievement. Um <laughs> So, uh, you know, who, who are we to judge? Um, all right. So um, we left off at the, fo- at the foundation of the Bitcoin Foundation. And yeah. Tell us a little bit about uh, the work of the foundation and mm-hmm. um, the role that it plays in kind of, um, you know, for lack of a better word, legitimizing uh, this as something that grownups should be concerned with or can yeah. be concerned with. Yeah. And, <clears throat> you know, the foundation is funny. Um, it was... It was very controversial right from the beginning, the existence of the foundation at all. Right. There is a huge community dispute over... It's the sort of like Dylan going electric. Yeah, it was a very Dylan going electric <laughs> moment. Um, you know, who are these... You know, we're supposed to not have institutions. Now there's an institution. Who are these people who are claiming to be, you know, the foundation of Bitcoin yeah. and, like, all these different things? Um uh, there was a lot of community uproar over the fact that we had the word the in front of Bitcoin Foundation. So we dropped the the so that anybody could have a Bitcoin Foundation, which is true. Anybody could. There was nothing special about us. Um, we were just people who were trying to, like, you know, put a public face on it and move things forward. Um, and there are others who were very supportive of it. Um, but that controversy never left. It never went away. Yeah. Um, even Gavin, who was the chief scientist of the Bitcoin Foundation and, you know, um, was the current kind of project manager for Bitcoin Core uh, at the time, uh, was a very controversial figure as well. Um, Bitcoin does not like kings uh, or people pretending to be king. Um, and there are segments in the community who will try and uh, tear down anybody who tries to stand up. Um and it's not always a bad thing, right? I mean, it does keep things in balance. And, it, you know, you're not, I, you have to believe that over time, right, these institutions aren't meant to matter um, or take over the role of the, what, what 
uh, Satoshi developed in terms of like algorithmic governance of the system. Um, so it was controversial right from the get-go, which to me was a bit of a shock, right? <laughs> but at the time, I, you know. Um, but I, I took the opportunity and I, I, I started advancing um, a public policy effort um, right out of the chute because, you know, when I joined, the whole reason I joined was was to do that, was to change the change the narrative that was happening in D.C., in particular, um, and capitals around the world. And the narrative was terrible. It was Chuck Schumer saying that, you know, shut down Bitcoin, shut down the dark, you know, dark net markets, the Silk Road and all of that. Yeah. You had Liberty Reserve, which was a notorious money laundering operation uh, running out of Costa Rica by convicted felons, um, and, which was a centralized digital currency, but nonetheless, it was being equated um, did, did, did all the did all the dark stuff give you pause? I mean, at some point, like setting aside personal liability. I mean, like as an ethical person, as a dad, yeah. um, did, did you ever be like, "Well, shit"? I mean, is this is this really is that who we are? Yeah, um, it's not something. I, I, I certainly thought about it, right? And I had come to terms with this idea that that you you can't have open systems that are going to be pure. Uh, and always good. Um, that that's the nature of having open systems, but that on balance, having a basically a new economy that was being built on these open principles would be worth it, yeah. at least over time. Um, but there are certainly like dark moments in like all of this where you think about it and you say, what am I like working towards here? Absolutely, yeah. of course. Everybody has those moments and those doubts, but you you do have to have something that you come back to where you say, this is the principle I really believe in, and that's the part that I'm advocating for. Hmm. Um, what do you think started the, um, you know, the walk into the light? I mean, you know, the chain of events that leads to the present moment, which is, you know, Bitcoin mania and... What do you think started to turn the table where this was seen as something outside of, you know, money laundering and mail order cocaine? Yeah, I think it was a few things that were starting to, like, come together all at once. Um, I, I think there is um, there's a greater awareness and, you know, however cliche it may seem, but in Silicon Valley, um, that there was something here um, that could be really interesting. I don't think people really knew what it was like they do today, but they knew that it was something. And there were some very early movers in the Valley. And I think it really was just a handful of very, just a handful of people who, who really had a big outsized influence, some of whom are more known than others. And I think there are some who are less known, but were deeply influential from back in that time um, in their own circles. You know, for me, it was in the legal sphere uh, and in the policy sphere. And it wasn't just me. There are guys in D.C. like Jerry Brito who uh, did a lot of work. Um, he worked at, with the foundation. And he worked before the foundation was there. He was doing things. Um, Ed Felton at Princeton, um, who's you know, was doing work on Bitcoin um, in the very early days. And there was a small group of uh, academics that he kind of seemed to, from a distance at least, seemed to like really kind of shepherd into this. Um, there are, 
so in the academic world, in the legal world, in the policy world, in the investor world, guys like Wenceslas and and Brian Armstrong, um, uh, who went around the valley and, and really educated a lot of the early investors on the opportunity here. Um, uh, even Peter Vesnes, who went around and, and similarly did things like that and raised the first venture money into a startup of anybody, whatever you think of the startup now. Um, uh, what company was that? The CoinLab. Yeah, sure. Um, so there are all these people, and it was just like, but it really was, um, it really was a community effort, I guess, yeah. at the point. Yeah, it and was it people. Time. It was a groundswell. Yeah. Um, it was true grassroots. Right, people could have the Bitcoin. It was it was a thing that they could have that they could have control over. And you got to really picture like this after the financial crisis. You're talking to people who are not your typical tech entrepreneurs, right? They were not going to, for the most part, uh, form startups um, and get funding in a traditional way. Maybe Brian would have, maybe Peter would have, but a lot of these people in Wences, of course. But maybe a lot of these people weren't like a Jared kind of certainly wasn't he was he was somebody who would have been on the margins um and charlie would have been on the margins you know good entrepreneurs but just not in that same way sure um and this is something they could grab a hold of and it could be theirs um and i I think that really animated them and others to go out and sort of advocate zealously for this thing um and of course they think they believed in the principles right again the same principles um, whatever they believed in, whatever I believe in. Um, but for me, it was it was in the legal and policy space. Going to D.C., setting up meetings with regulators, um, at the Treasury Department and other places, having those meetings, um, getting out in public. One of the first uh, public events I did in this role uh, was at the Institute for Peace uh, of all places, and it was an event hosted by the International Center for Missing and Exploited Children, ICMEC. Uh, Ernie Allen uh, invited me, and I was told by many people that this was a huge mistake to go. Um, this was not a friendly organization. Uh, it wasn't going to be friendly people with me on stage, um, and there was lots of prediction of doom and gloom. Um, but I really sincerely felt that if you believe that what you're doing is the right thing, yeah. you gotta you, you gotta, gotta get up the gospel. there. You got to preach the gospel. You got to get up there and you can't be afraid of engaging with people who have a different opinion. And you never know, right? They may be more open-minded than you think. People like to portray people in government or in different roles as having a certain viewpoint. And that's not always necessarily the case. I got up on stage and there was somebody from the Department of Justice who said, Bitcoin is like child porn. And I looked at him. I said, I'm a father and I resent the fact that you would say that. And... I've never heard from that person again. And you can see everybody in the audience looked at that person. And it wasn't, I didn't look bad in that exchange, right? It was the person, yeah. the person who seemed unreasonable was the person who had taken that really ridiculous position. After that event, actually at that event, I met the, um, the, the head of uh, the Financial Crime Enforcement Network, Jen Shasky at the time. Uh, and we just had some, you know, we, we chit-chatted a little bit and, you know, talked about coming in and doing a presentation for them. Um, I, I was able to, to, to talk to Ernie Allen at ICMEC and develop a relationship there. And, and he actually ended up really, we found a lot more common ground than you would have expected. Um, ended up forming a task force that involved many different agencies and private actors and everything, which was influential back in the t- in, 
in, in those days. Um, then went and did some presentations for the government. Eventually met people like John Collins, who was a staffer for Senator Carper on the Hill. Um, helped coordinate Senate hearings with him. Uh, testified at those hearings. Um, and, uh, and those really, I think that was a real watershed moment. When I went to those Senate hearings and we had, it wasn't anything I said, it was what everybody else said at those hearings. We had a, a panel of uh, government witnesses who all said that they didn't view Bitcoin as a major threat or something that they couldn't deal with. And then we had Ernie Allen, who was sitting next to me after we had spent months and months talking about these things, who said that the worst thing that could happen is if the government acts in a draconian way to regulate this current the, this system. Um, I think that was a watershed moment. I think yeah. it changed everything. Yeah, no, there's no question. Uh, no question it started to bring real money into the space or it, it gave people permission to participate uh, at the next level. Are you ever ambivalent about the current moment we're in? It's so crazy. Um, Bitcoin is useless as a uh, means of value exchange. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's a, Speculation, obviously, is what drives the market today. Um, you know, are, are you in, is it all triumph and goodness or do you ever feel like, uh, that that you know the level of enthusiasm for this thing is it represents a threat to it. Yeah, it's is it the right kind of enthusiasm? I, I, you know, so what's funny is right after the Senate hearings, Mt. Gox imploded and Charlie yeah. Shrem got arrested for money laundering, and effectively that bubble burst very very quickly after that, and it was just a slow bleed um, where the price price wise where it went from you know, $1,000 all the way down to $250, and it took years, literally years. And it, I just saw person after person walk away from the space. Um, and, you know, that could happen again. There's no reason why we couldn't see a very similar type situation where, you know, the, the price, you know, goes down and everybody walks away. Um, but some people do stay. Some people stay the last time. I actually found that to be the one of the most fun times. I mean, the early days yeah. were real, the real early days were super fun. Um, we weeded out the, uh, the posers. Yeah. The true believers in the, uh, yeah. you know. and I, that's probably one of the, those times where I really learned the most was in that last crash. Um, and over that span of time, um, it really gets you to focus. It takes away the distractions you know, all the new companies and the new offerings and the price going up all the time. And, you know, did I make a bunch of money today or didn't I, or did yeah. I lose a bunch? All that seems to go away and you get to focus again on what actually matters long in the long run, which is what am I building here? Why am I building it? And who am I building it for? Um, and I, I just, I think that's the, the really interesting time. Um, I think my wife may disagree. <laughs> she might like the times I'm making more money. But yeah, like, yeah, sure. But you do have to be ready for those ups and downs, right? Like there are going to be times when you're making money and there are going to be times when you're not going to be making money. I think the, I think one of the funnier things is that nowadays everybody feels like anybody who's around in the early days must be like a billionaire. Yeah. And it's, it's, it, there, I'm sure there are certainly people who have done very well. Um, but it's not necessarily true because those same people who are around in the early days, you know, a lot of us, you know, you had to sell Bitcoin at a cheap price just to yeah. support yourself. Well, there's like the anecdote of the uh, the two and a half million dollar pizza, right? Uh, yeah. Um, 
Um, so from your vantage point, uh, any predictions you'd care to make about where we go from here? What what happens next? What should people expect? Yeah, so the price will go to a million. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I have no idea what the price will do, honestly. Um, and I don't think anybody should be getting into this just because the price is going up. I hear people are like liquidating that. their 401ks. And oh, my God. I mean, like, this, this is terrible. It's stupid. Uh, like, you, nobody should be doing that. It really is. You have to appreciate the risk here um, as best you can. Yeah. And that's not to say you shouldn't buy any. Yeah. Right? You should just buy what you're comfortable buying um, and living with the result, which could be very negative. Um, so regardless uh, of what the price does, and I, I, I have less interest in that stuff, um, I think that from a technical point of view, I mean, it's, it's incredible it's really incredible to see how many projects are out there right now. And obviously there are a lot that are just BS and, you know, trying to make a quick buck, but how many really technically interesting projects there are right now. It's just a robust ecosystem. That's the thing that's really amazing to me, you know, reflecting back on the early days to today is, just how many really smart people are part of this community now, how many really capable people are like thinking really big, would have seemed ridiculous thoughts just a few years ago. And they're just able to do it because they can now. Um, There's enough that's been built that people can do it. Um, Whether that gets reflected in, you know, pecuniary reward or not is sort of irrelevant. Um, the, the opportunity that's there today is, and it's really all opportunity still. It's really, it's not realized. It's just so much opportunity today that's just there to be had um, for people who are bold and, and capable. All right. So Patrick Merck, I love that point he ends on there, which is that it's almost become kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that the meteoric rise of Bitcoin uh, and of crypto more generally, has attracted some incredibly smart people to the space who are coming up with some really revolutionary ideas. Hard to do a lot better than that in any technology space uh, and certainly bodes well for the future of Bitcoin. Okay, thanks for sticking around and uh, we will see you next time.